Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're very welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, following the huge vote garnered by Sinn Féin in the recent general election, the party's past, present, and I suppose its culture have come under the spotlight. Kieran McCarthy, a native of Cove, County Cork, is somebody who can give a unique insight in that regard. He's a former IRA man who's happy to discuss his past, although he steers clear of particulars and he says he won't discuss actual operations he was involved in. He, along with two others, were arrested in Belgium in 1990 and served a prison sentence for terrorist-related activities. There was speculation at the time that the active service unit, as it was, was planning to assassinate Prince Charles and his wife, Lady Di, but McCarthy has rubbished that as idle gossip. After the ceasefire, he entered politics and served as a Sinn Féin councillor for 20 years until falling out with the party in 2015. What makes him different, though, from others who've left Sinn Féin is that he appears to hold little animus towards them, although he does take issue with the way his own case was handled. But in terms of the party's political project in general direction, he, um, he'd seem to be fairly at one with them. As such, I suppose you could say his voice is free from any kind of constraints that many, including myself, believe exist within the party. I met him recently and started by asking him how and why he joined the IRA. I suppose the, the, the greatest influencer would have been my experience with the Irish Army previously in 1976 when I did a tour of the bar. Um, so, could you go back to small weekend? When did you join the Irish Army? November 1975. What age were you? I was 15 and a half. Um, I used a forged birth cert and uh, I found myself. My 16th birthday was actually on border duty uh, in Monaghan, uh, the Monaghan area. Um, I, the experiences. Um, we, we, were, we were prepared for this like we were trained to go to the border but there was an awful lot that we weren't prepared for and the, the most obvious one would have been once we got there we discovered we were in a hostile country um, You're saying that the, the, the people in the border and even on the southern side of the border were hostile to the Irish army Oh yeah, definitely We, we first ended up in an old monastery in Coot Hill in County Cavan and we spent a few weeks there because we were waiting for another uh, battalion to leave Monhin before we took over. I think they were from Limerick at the time. And uh, once uh, in our time off, we go socialising in the local town. We were barroom brawls and dance halls. We were fisticuffs with the locals because we were just, they were hostile towards us. I first, I, I was in Monaghan one night coming home from a, a dance hall in the back of an army truck with a gang of other lads. We were picked up after being out for, for the night. And we were after being in the, in the ballroom brawl with locals. And I can remember turning around to the lad alongside me sitting in the back of the truck and I'm showing him my shirt. My shirt was covered in blood. It was ripped. It wasn't my blood, thank be to God. And I said to him, I turned around and I asked him, what's a free stater? And he says to me, that's what they call the Irish area up here, free staters. And it, I... I had a clue. I was that raw, that naive. 
But this is what we were encountering from the local people. Not, no, you go into some bars and you wouldn't be a word said you. But you, you're guaranteed if you go out in the town in the night, you you drinking more than one bar, you're going to come back with a black eye or you're going to have to give someone else a black eye because of it being attacked. That was raw histo- uh, hostility and I didn't know where it was coming from. And I can remember the first couple of occasions being out on patrol itself, on the border itself, and you go through all these, you're, we're in our Land Rovers, you might have a guard a car, a scarf, no, you might not. And we're going through these villages and these hamlets, and we're being stoned by the locals. And I remember one day, this, I think it was probably my second time out, and this was happening, and I turned to the corporal uh, with us, and I said, what's going on? Is it the way they think they're mistaking us for British Army? And he said, no. He said, look at the, look at the front of the landlord, look at your aerial, you have a tricolour. These people know exactly who we are. But they think that we're collaborating with the British. And, really, and I said, well, why are they doing it? Why? He said, did you come across all those um, smashed up, blown up bridges and the, the checkpoints and the boulders and the, the roads blocking all these uh, border roads? I said, yeah. Well, he said, the British did that. And those, as, to, as far as those people are concerned, they couldn't have done that without our cooperation. So they see us as collaborators. Okay, so that was your experience. And to, yeah. uh, I mean, it would be fair to say that kind of experience radicalised you to the extent that you decided that the course for you was to join the IRA. Well, I came, I, I came back after border duty and I discovered, well, this isn't it. Now, I wasn't alone. There was other recruits. This, From within the Irish Army? Within the Irish Army. And this is the thing that I could never get my head around. It was only us recruits who were asking questions and were talking amongst ourselves about this. The older soldiers, the, the, the veterans, they were going about it like it was another day at the office. And I could never get my head around that because we experienced things. It made me question what was going on. It made me question why the population on the border felt differently about the Irish Army. And you can be sure they felt differently about the Republican Army because in the way I was looking at it, as far as they were concerned, there was only one army that was serving their interests. And that was the Republican army. The IRA. The IRA. Now, that's not to say that all the people, we had fights in the pubs and were all IRA. I don't believe that. And how did you come to join up the IRA? Right, so I left I left the border then, and when the tour was over, and I went back to Collins' Barracks in Cork, and I, then one day, and I knew, I knew the Irish army isn't for me. I, I, I had an eye-opener what the Irish army represented. And it wasn't for me. And I knew there's no point going on NCO's course or trying to get a, 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 a promotion or anything like that. I'll bite out my time, finish my three years, and out the door, that's me, gone. So that was grand. And one day I was in, 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 in the Barrack Hallway and I saw a note, on a notice board uh, vacancies for Spike Island. Now, Spike Island is where I came from. That's where I had been with the FCA full-time before I joined the regular army. And I said, why not? I live a quiet life, go back there and get on with it. And that's what I did. But I'm, while all this is going on, I'm all the time now trying to learn more about what's going on in the North. Reading. I read history books. I read libraries of books on it. I, le- I read all about um, class politics and the history of this struggle. And everything about it taught me, we're never, never, never going to have peace on this island until the British are gone. And uh, I still didn't join the IRA. I waited. Uh, but I did work with the IRA. I helped them in different ways. While I How was, did you come into contact with them? I knew someone in Cove who was um, oh, a paper seller. Right. The RRI. And he put me in touch with someone and it, took, it went from there. Um, 
Then, as far as you were concerned, on the basis of your experience in the border, on the basis of what you read about history, on the basis of your knowledge, you believed that the IRA's campaign of violence was legitimate in attempting to get the British to leave Northern Ireland. I did, I did, I, I firmly believe that because the whole, like... One thing about that, Karen, yeah, there's absolutely zero democratic legitimacy for that. Now, let me just put that in context. Down here, Sinn Féin were less than 1% in terms of any poll. In the north, the, the, first of all, the Catholic nationalist um, community was a minority. Within that, the nationalists represented by the likes of Sinn Féin was by far the biggest majority voice. So you were talking about a minority within a minority within a minority who believed that there was legitimacy in a campaign of violence to change the status of what, and I think everybody would agree, what was a, a statelet up there at the time that was completely sectarian. But you were in that very small minority who believed you had the right to take life in order to change that status because you believed it was unjust. I did, in the same mould that Pearson Connolly were in that minority as well in 1916. But you see, the thing about it was, you, you, could, you could use all those figures and to, to justify doing nothing about it. Or, for example... I could take you to, I could get you today, I could introduce you to families today in this town, in Cove, where I live, who were burnt out of Belfast in Cypress Street in 1969. They had to come down here and they had to take refuge. They were the lucky ones. What about the ones that didn't, the ones that couldn't? Who was going to defend them? It wasn't the Irish Army. It certainly wasn't the British Army. But if you ask those people, if you ask those families today, who did defend them and who did represent them they would tell you the Irish army but not the Irish army that you and I know you're talking about the IRA exactly they don't look at them like that and they, they, they never turn around to them and say well you actually leave my house burned down because you don't have a democratic mandate to protect me that, that the real work doesn't it, look. It, I understand that Karen, but if you take away a democratic mandate and I understand the comparisons with Pearson Connolly now a couple of things about that first instance we're talking about a very different time in the second instance what Pearson Connolly did lasted all of a week and it didn't turn into anything that could be described as terrorist that could have been described as um, innocent people getting caught up if anything Pierce surrendered because of the innocence that's very different from a campaign, an organised campaign, that, which the IRA campaign... What but it, the, people, the people that tried and executed Pierce didn't hold that view that you just said. They, they, they said he was a terrorist. They said Connolly was a terrorist. The Irish Independent editorial called for Connolly's death. And we know why that happened. Do you know what I mean? So, look, nothing about the North or the border that I experienced was normal. We weren't talking about... Everyone down here felt they lived in a normal society. Try telling that to the people who were suffering in the North. There was nothing about it that was normal one or other, democratic. Would you, um, to move on from one other element to that, what's the difference between people deciding they had a right to do that in terms of the provisional IRA and going back 30, 40 years, and those, that very tiny minority today in the continuity IRA, the, whatever they call themselves, the, they're called dissidents in general, what's the difference with what they want to do today well I can only I can only give you my interpretation of that the difference today is the British gave a commitment that they've no strategic or separate interest in Ireland and allowing the Irish people to decide by themselves when they want to decide they want to unify the country 
That never happened before. I would still question but that that gives the right oh, no, no, to, to, but, but I'm, I'm take life on the basis that you feel you, you have a historical right on the basis of what the island should be. I mean, there's one leaps from the other. No, what I'm saying is, I believe then the right existed because the British had a selfish interest in Ireland. Now, my own view on that was probably to do with the Cold War. They needed a base in Ireland because of their, their British monitoring the Russians. Right. That left. That all changed when, the, when the, the, the wall came down in Eastern Europe. The British were then in a position to tell the Irish and Republicans around the table, OK, guys, we really have no uh, selfish interest. Now... I take your point on that. but That's, that's the difference between then and now. That, but I take your point, but at the same time, those who still want to perpetrate war could put forward the logic, and they would have a different logic to yours. Their logic would be... Northern Ireland, as far as they're concerned, is still part of the UK, full stop. Therefore, there is a, a right and a, a duty, on, as far as they're concerned, in, in the campaign that only a tiny minority, as far as I can see, would have any hope of supporting. They can turn around and say that nothing has changed there, that that, that right still exists. It's just a different logic to yours, but it's the same thing. But what they're saying can be changed now without a gun. It can be changed before. It couldn't be changed because the British were refusing to change it. The, the British have conceded something now that they hadn't previously. That, to me, removes the right to use force. Now, I'm not speaking for any continuity or anyone else. They have to, they have to come up with their own logic for what they're doing. I'm telling you how I feel, how I felt then, and how I feel now. The circumstances have changed radically, and the approach has to change with it. As somebody who took part in that conflict, and you're, you're quite freely open about, you did take part, yeah. and for understandable reasons, you don't want to go into specific operations, but as somebody who took part in that, do you have any regrets about the way that war was waged by the IRA? Particularly, I'm thinking of things like Patsy Gillespie, uh, the manner in which he was driven into a, or explosives were attached to his vehicle, and he was told to drive into a British Army checkpoint and he was blown up. That's one example. But mm -hmm. there are numerous examples like that. Do you have any regrets about being part of an organisation that engaged in the conflict in that manner? I, I would say that, that uh, a lot... Of, that, yeah, a lot of those things shouldn't have happened. Definitely, what it doesn't I mean you don't have to ask that question. Of course, those things shouldn't have happened. But, unfortunately, when there's a war, things do happen. Um, you could ask that question to, to, to a British cabinet minister. Do they regret Bloody Sunday? What would they tell you? What would their answer? It's war. It happened. It shouldn't have happened. And let's move on. Um, yes, there's lots about that that, I, that I, I wouldn't agree with. But the overall um, mission was to bring about a united Ireland. And the war, in my opinion, was justified at the time. Maybe the methods weren't. In and, and in terms of the morality of it, you believe that morality was justified in wherever. Once that condition was there, that the provision IRA decided they were going to prosecute a war. Once that was there, you think the morality is correct in, however, that what happened thereafter, these things happen in war. They do, of course. And why was there a war? That's the obvious question should be asked. Not what happened when it, when it, when it started. How did it start? Why did it start? What, what, what preventative measures were there beforehand being used to stop that war being prosecuted? There was none. 
Nevertheless, one way or the other, mm-hmm. notwithstanding it was a sectarian state yeah. and all of that, the majority of those who were in the minority within the North, the Catholics, were not in favour of a campaign of violence as it was carried out by the IRA. They took that legitimacy on themselves. Um, that's, that's very debatable. That's very debatable. Uh, I mean... But certainly in terms of how they voted. Well, yeah, but, but for who were they going to vote for at the time? They had no choice. They, they had Sinn Féin to vote for. Yeah, but... but um, they voted. They, look, you can see it yourself today. The way the voting patterns changed and they changed slowly. There's no one going to go out. Just the first time Sinn Féin went for election, everyone was going to go out and vote Sinn Féin. No one believed that was going to happen. Everyone knew that was going to be a gradual thing. Well, no, there's no doubt. Having said that, Karen, Sinn Féin's electoral fortunes, once the violence stopped, they certainly went on a very much an upward graft, and I think that speaks for itself. Oh yeah, what people yeah, but about. yeah, yeah, but more so here in the south than than in the north, in the north as well. But there was a lot of different factors at play there as well. Like, yeah. Okay, just to be, and your own experience when you were in the IRA, like, was it a full time job? Did you hold down a job while you were working for the IRA? Look, it's it's like it's like everyone else. It's. Um, uh, some people would be more active than others. Some people would be full time with the IRS. Some people would be part time. Some people would be might spend it a, a period full time, and some people might spend the period part time. Some people might go into retirement for a couple of years and might come back. And what did you do? Um, I I would have started off slowly, and and then kind of built up, and uh, eventually when when I was arrested. Uh, you were arrested in Belgium in 1990. I was, yeah, yeah. And so after that, I obviously my uh, my my I wouldn't have been as active after that because my cover would have been obviously I would have been under a lot of surveillance and I wouldn't have been in a position to do as much as other times. In general terms, had you been doing it long before you were arrested in Belgium? Uh, probably ten years, thereabouts. Yeah. And you would have been fairly active during that period. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say active, and I know you don't want to talk about specifics, but does that mean you would have been active, for example, in the north and in the UK as opposed to just down here? Yeah, we'll be down here, yeah. Okay, and as we said, you were arrested in Belgium as part of what was described as an active service unit. There, there was some controversy over what exactly we were doing in Belgium. You've never specified. There, 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 there was suggestions that you were there on the basis that the then... Uh, Princess Diana and her husband, the Prince of Wales, were due there. You've never commented on that. No, well, that's not that's not true. I I have commented on it. Sorry, in, in so far as it's not true. It's not true that that's why you were there. Yeah, I think the the speculation in the British media that that might have been the case, and maybe it was. Uh, there's there's probably two things going on there at the time. One was that they were trying to sell newspapers, but the second thing was they were probably trying to influence the British or the Belgian courts as well, trying to make up the ante and. And you, you were tried in Belgium and sentenced. And what kind of sentences did you receive? Very lenient and very surprising. Um, I, I received uh, a two-year sentence, and uh, I got off on, on good behaviour. And obviously, and the the other thing that the, the Belgian system have is when in, when the king or the queen has a birthday, a prisoner might get a an amnesty or they get a, a cut in their sentence as a, a, a gesture, which benefited us. Do you, 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 so you, I only ended up serving 10 months out of the two it's, years. It's a bit ironic. You were, you were involved in the IRA and you effectively got a royal pardon. Exactly, exactly. And we got, uh, uh, 
you get you get these uh, alcohol-free beers sent into you on the, on the occasions for the celebrate the Queen or the the King's birthday. And all. In terms of your own actions during that time when you were active in the IRA, did you ever pause and wonder about what you were involved in to the extent that this ultimately was? It was a campaign that was taking people's lives for a political purpose. Did you ever pause? Did you ever have any reason to pause and think? Am I right in going down this road, or were you always very sure, as far as you were concerned, this was morally legitimate in your mind? Well, it's funny you asked the question in the way you asked it, because what you should have asked me was, did you ever consider this before you joined the IRA? Well, no, even when you were in there is, is the other well, thing. Well, well all, those, all those things were, of course, known. And this is the thing that you must appreciate. I don't believe for a minute anyone would join an organisation like the IRA without giving it some considerable thought beforehand. And that's and you can see now yourself from the period I left the Irish Army, even while I was in the Irish Army, t- thinking about this. That's why I didn't rush into it. It was a long decision, and the, the tipping point for me were obviously would have been the, the hunger strikes in 1981, when the bodies started coming out of the H blocks. That's the tipping point for me. But for other people, they might have had different reasons. While in the IRA, of course, you think about those things. Of course you think about things like Enniskillen when it happens. You'd say to yourself, what the hell went wrong there? Or Bobby Gillespie, as you mentioned earlier. You're saying, why? Patsy Gillespie. Patsy Gillespie. Of course you're asking yourself those questions. We're human beings. Everyone is a human being. Of course you have feelings, you have doubts, you have questions. But you also have conviction. You know, and that's, that's probably the difference. You have a conviction. I have a conviction. Of course this is going to be bloody. Of course I'm going to get involved in, in bloodshed. Is this something I want to do? Is this something that's going to change? Is this something that is going to be undone? Is it something that can be avoided? And to, when I'm looking around me, I'm saying, all the political parties, there's, no, there's none of them doing anything about it. There's none of them. Well, that's, is that fair now to, to say there are no one doing anything about it? They were certainly making it, t- they were doing it about it within the political process, to be fair, like. Well, what, what they're doing... All they were doing is just damning us. And that's the parade out there, and we can't have anything to do with them. And remember Section 31 on the broadcast, the censorship. You had reporters who were afraid to ask questions in case they got into trouble. So how are you going to have a debate about what, how to, to resolve this matter with all that paranoia? Yeah, but it's, it's also documented that in the early years of Hume Adams, there was also contacts with the Irish government, and there was yeah, but channels yeah, open there, and they, the, they, they were There was, in, but how, how, did, how did the establishment media in the South respond to John Hume? He was now a, par- a pariah because he was talking to Jerry Adams. I think you'll find, Kieran, there was elements in the media that did exactly that, and there were other elements that did no such thing. So, I mean, I think... Putting everyone to the same brush. Well, well maybe I'm wrong there, but there was. You know what I'm talking okay, about. I do, I do. I know, I know exactly. Yeah. There was some elements. There's no question in the world. Tell me, you mentioned about your experiences earlier, about references to the free state. Yeah. How do you regard the Republic of Ireland? Do you regard it as the free state? What do you call it? What is what is now the 26 well, that, countries uh, in your mind? That yeah, that's, that, that's, that's what I call it, the 26 county state. No, all right, it's a Republican name, but I don't believe it's a Republic. Fianna Fáil would call themselves a Republican Party. I don't regard them as a Republican Party. So it's only a title. It's, it doesn't mean I don't recognise. Of course I recognise the state. Of course I recognise the northern state. But I also recognise both of these states as being in transition. I believe, okay, and I, I, do, I do honestly believe I'm going to see it before I die, hopefully in a touch wood, that there is going to be a united Ireland. Okay, but you say 
it's not a republic. Uh, in, in what way is it not a republic? With all the inequality, all the people living on the side of the road, how could you call that a republic? Republic, republics don't teach, don't treat our citizens that way. Well, I, I, absolutely, in terms of the, 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 in terms of what a republic, an ideal republic is. But yeah. France is a republic. The United States of America is a republic. I mean, I'm talking about as an entity, as a political entity. When you when you when you say republics, okay, we, my definition of the republic would be the proclamation in. Uh, 1916. Now, I know most government parties will tell you that they all aspire to the same thing. But do they? In, re- in reality, do they? What does the election results of the last few weeks tell us? What do the opinion polls since then tell us? People aren't buying into that anymore. They, they know this isn't a republic. It's a republican name. One day it probably will be a, a real republic when it's joined with the rest of the country. As far as republicanism was concerned during the years of the conflict in the North, Republicanism meant a united Ireland. The other elements that you are putting forward now in terms of equality, fraternity, these elements, they never featured in the Republican iconography or the Republican debate at the time. It was all about breaking the link with Britain. Well, you see, you have to be a Republican to know that that's not true what you just said. Because all those debates were taking place. They were taking place in the prisons. They were taking place in the commons, Sinn Féin commons. Uh, IRA units themselves were discussing these things about themselves. Everyone knew what they. This, there was a goal here, like it was a united Ireland. But what, what's the point in having united Ireland? That's giving it the same as what Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael gave you. It's, and, well, and in in another vein, would you suggest that the the, the Stormont Assembly, of which Sinn Féin is, is joint administrator, is, yeah. is jointly in government DUP, DUP? Would you suggest they're pursuing a republican agenda there? No, I I I I I. I, I feel they have a strategy and the strategy is to bring unionism along with them to the day that we will have a, a successful result from a border poll. Then you have your republic because then the people all in the whole island will decide what they want. And when they decide that democratic amongst them all, you're probably going to get a republican uh, outcome. If Sinn Féin, for example, take... Um, so can I just correct this? When you talk about a republican, are you talking about a socialist republican? That would be the, that would be my my goal, and I would I would imagine a lot of the people in Sinn Féin today. Now there's a lot of them who have only joined in recent years, and they would have no baggage or they would have no history like that. But I would I would I would uh, imagine the leadership of Sinn Féin and the leadership of, of the, the, the but those people who were former IRA, IRA members who are now party members, which is their democratic right. I would imagine their goal is still for uh, a socialist republic. And when you get the, when we get to the stage where we have the unionist working class on board, I think you will see a socialist republic. Perhaps, but you'll mm. certainly be going against the grain in terms of the way government is done in most of the Western yeah, world, well, Western well, Europe. Not, well, yeah, but you see, it depends now what your interpretation of socialism is. You know, uh, I, I would see what Sinn Féin, the policies Sinn Féin have in the South today, would be along those lines. Okay, and just to come to that element of it, and you know it very well, uh, and I have to say, to my mind, you're a fairly unique voice in that you're somebody who's left Sinn Féin but not over the peace process and you're not critical of Sinn Féin's general direction. So that's why I'm interested in your opinion in this. Um, Sinn Féin, I think it's fair to say, did tremendously well in the recent general election, largely based on what you might call bread and butter issues, particularly housing, which is in a state of emergency, 
and the health, which is a different matter, but it's definitely yeah. something that's of a sore in, in what is a wealthy country at the moment. But the issue that remains is that some people feel that these are effectively a Trojan horse and that the main agenda for Sinn Féin remains a border poll, unity, etc. And in addition to that, people feel that the overall strategy of the party in relation to the unity issue is being directed by what you might call former senior IRA people. What's your opinion in, in relation to those issues? Okay, I think, I think you put the cart before the horse about the, the United Ireland. You see, what, what would be the point in achieving United Ireland and not having the rest of the groundwork done? I think the two are working together. They are, they are showing the people what's, what their policies are, what sort of society they want to bring about. And they're also... Now, the, Sinn Féin have not, on any occasion, denied or hidden the fact that they want to unite Ireland. They've never won't. hidden it, but it has not been the driving policy in the last election, for example. Well, look, common sense. It's probably not going to go... It's not going to be a big vote-getter. You're going to have your people who want United Ireland. I, I, I've listened to some of them on the, the television and they said that that's the reason why they've gone along to these Mary Lou meetings, because they want United Ireland. Younger people probably have different issues. Sinn Féin are, are responsible for both. I'm not, I'm not a spokesperson for Sinn Féin. I'm only giving you my opinion. But if you're saying, Karen, that it's not going to be a vote-getter, yet it remains the main focus of the party, isn't there an issue there? Because you're effectively asking people to vote for you for, on, on something that's not your main focus. But, but, it, but it, when you say the main... Every issue is the main. United Ireland is one of them. You see, we, we, you have to remember, Sinn Féin is not representing just the South. Sinn Féin is representing the North. There's a long-term plan here. And that long-term plan buys into stability for the future. And that United Ireland is going to be the most stable factor in the future, the long-term stable factor. And what of the belief, and there's certain circumstantial evidence to back it up, that the policy on unity is not being primarily directed by the elected leadership, but by figures who were in the IRA generally who seem to be based in, in, in Belfast? Well, first of all, I don't believe that. But I, I do have a theory on it, but it, it's not as the way you pointed it out there. When, look, I go back to when I was a young volunteer, back in the early 1980s. Day in, day out, we were listening to lectures from Fianna Fáil leaders and Fianna Gael leaders and Labour Party, the church leaders, bishops. We even had a Pope who told us, drop the gun, put away your guns and fight for your united Ireland by peaceful means. Now, here we are, 20, 30 years later, the gun is put away. What are those people supposed to do? It doesn't, it doesn't apply to the, just the, the ordinary rank-and-file volunteer that he should have the democratic right to get involved in politics. It should also apply to the army council. They, those people are human beings as well. They're citizens as well. They're now acting in a peaceful way, and they should have the right to do likewise. If, for example... But no one's denying... No, nobody's suggesting... No, but I, I, for I, that, what they're suggesting is that they are the de facto leadership when it comes to the issue of unity as opposed to the elected representatives? No, I wouldn't say that. What I, what I would say, and I, I reckon this dates back to 1986, the, the time of abstentionism when Sinn Féin took the plunge to en enter and recognise Leinster House. I was there that weekend with th those big debates in the Mansion House at that Ardesh, and I listened to all the arguments from the, those who were opposed to abstentionism, those who were for it. And I also listened to the, 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 the IRA had a, had a um, 
representative there who, who gave a statement as well. Now, I would imagine, and this is only speculation on my part, I would imagine, going back to that time, that there was probably some sort of a deal done that in the event that Sinn Féin would ever get to the position where it is today, that there would be someone who would have to keep an eye that the, the issue of unity is never taken off the agenda. And the reason for that one, and they came out in those debates back in 1986, there was numerous examples going right back to Fianna Fáil, when they came to power, they, they, we know we all know what they did to the IRA, but it was the IRA that actually got them to power. It was the IRA that led them into Leinster House that day as bodyguards because the Pinafall party believed there was going to be a coup from the then. Oh, go on, go well, on. Some, some of the TDs were supposed to have revolvers. They did, they did, yeah. And they had IRA bodyguards. Now, we know what Pinafall did to the IRA afterwards. They banned them, they shot them, they executed them, okay? Then we go go a bit further into 1948 when you had Clan the Publica, you had the former IRA chief of staff, McBride, went in with Fine Gael, doing his best. Again, he lost. He lost the argument on United Ireland and his party faded into oblivion. Okay? Then you had Sinn Féin, official Sinn Féin, and Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, and they did the same. Now, it was, if you were a cynic back then in 1986, you would say, yeah, God, we don't want to end up like that. So I would, I'm only speculating that there was some sort of a deal done at that period where they said, look, if we ever get to the stages, apparently, where we could um, actually take power in Leinster House, we must have some safeguard on that one issue, because that's the issue that we're all fighting and dying for. And now, today, those people are no longer a function of the IRA Army Council, but they're probably there as maybe, maybe a few individuals are there as an oversight body just to make sure... And occasionally give the party a bit of direction on the issue of unity. I wouldn't see any of those people having any part to play in any other function of the Sinn Féin business other than that one issue. Finally, um, Sinn Féin have made, as we said, a massive leap forward electorally. You, as somebody who joined the IRA, you were subsequently a Sinn Féin councillor for 20 plus years. And you, you had your own falling out with Sinn Féin over local issues yeah. in East Cork. Do you feel in any way that left out now at a time that seems to be of great advance for the Sinn Féin party? No, uh, the, 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 I suppose the human nature, you could say a, a bit of a, do I feel a bit jealous that I lost out? And yeah, you, you could think that. And, and probably uh, if this happened a few years ago, I probably would have felt that way, but not now. Um, I'm glad, I'm glad to see how Sinn Féin are doing. I'm glad to see that the, haven't dropped the issue of United Ireland, because that's the reason. Now, I actually got involved in politics by, by default, by mistake. What happened was, I was an IRA volunteer here in Cove, and the local elections were coming up in 1985. And the candidate, who, the person who was working towards for months and years, trying to get himself uh, known as the candidate, had, was arrested, and he had to get out of the country, and he left. And I was landed in that position, I was put in that position by default. The only reason why I was in the IRA was because of United Ireland. The only reason why I was in Sinn Féin was because of United Ireland. Okay? I know I got involved. I, I did 25 years as a councillor and I did that. But when I left Sinn Féin, and we won't go into all the reasons why, because we could be here forever, but when I left Sinn Féin, I suddenly discovered that I was up in County Hall and I was looking around one day and I said, what the hell am I doing here? You know? What can I do to bring about a United Ireland as an independent councillor? I have no function. I have no purpose. Okay? 
So when I look at Sinn Féin today, I say, fair play to them. Um, they did a lot of nasty stuff to me personally, in, 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 but I won't, we won't go into all that. But the goal, my, my overriding goal, my, my, the thing that I was prepared to risk my life for was a united Ireland. And I'm delighted that we're a lot closer because of Sinn Féin. And just, you you mentioned that in terms of your, your reason for being a councillor was United Ireland was the primary thing. And yeah. as far as you're concerned, on an, in, on an independent basis, you wouldn't be able to pursue that. Would you think that focus on United Ireland above and beyond all other elements of politics is something that a lot of current Sinn Féin politicians would, would share with you in that regard? Well, uh, well certainly all the old guard, all the older um councillors and, and TDs would, would be, yeah. And I'm not sure, quite sure about the younger, but I, I know that, I mean, you don't, you don't become a Sinn Féin candidate without knowing what the policies are. You know what I mean? So I, I would imagine everyone, and they, if they thought that a United Ireland was something that wasn't worth bothering with, they could just join another party. But they haven't. They joined Sinn Féin, so they must be aware of the, of the goal. And there can be no doubt about it, because you go to their annual Ardesh held in different parts of the country every year, you're going, you're going to meet thousands of people. And there's no doubt about it, United Ireland is the main thing spoken about. Kieran McCarthy, thanks very much. Thank you, Mick. It's a pleasure. Okay, folks, that's it. Plenty of food for thought there, I would have thought. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. You can access us through the Irish Examiner website or on Spotify, SoundCloud or Apple Music. You can contact me at mick.clifford.examiner.ie to let me know what exactly you think about the podcast may it be good, bad or indifferent or you can also get me on Twitter at at Mick Cliff. See you soon.